Have you ever tried to read the entire Bible and gotten stuck halfway through or been too intimidated to even start? We have the perfect book for you. It's from the St. Philip Institute and it's called From the Beginning, God's Search for Man. In 47 days, we guide you through the big picture of scripture from Genesis to the resurrection. Each day, there is a short reading from the Bible accompanied by an essay to help you see the connections between the Old and New Testament. You can pre-order today for $5 at stphilipinstitute.org. Thanks. In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to continue to look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church and its teaching on the Eucharist. In particular, in this episode, we look at the names given to the sacrament of the Eucharist, the presence of bread and wine, why that is used to celebrate the Eucharist, and also the institution of the Eucharist. So I hope you enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever, Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast. This is part two in our series on the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the Eucharist. Um, We are going to be covering today paragraphs 1328 to 1344, Uh, and if you missed the first part, you can go back and watch the the first episode where we began this new series. Um, So this section of the text in the Catechism um, deals first with different names for the sacraments. And if you haven't looked through the catechism or read through it before, one of the really cool things is that each specific sacrament, each individual sacrament, there's always a section on what do we call this sacrament. Every sacrament, there's a bunch of names that throughout the history of the church or in particular parts of the church um, become the normal way of referring to something. So we're talking about the Eucharist, and obviously for me that's the primary way I tend to think of referring to the sacrament. I'll call it the Eucharist. Um, But I want to show you the way that the, the Catechism treats just the fact that we have all of these names. So we'll start in paragraph 1328, and I'll read a couple paragraphs and then offer you some some uh, thoughts on it. So 1328 says, The inexhaustible richness of this sacrament is expressed in the different names we give it. Each name evokes certain aspects of it. It is called, and then there's a list here I just want to highlight for you, and then we'll kind of go back through them. Eucharist, it is called Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread, the Eucharistic assembly, the memorial of the Lord's passion and resurrection, the holy sacrifice, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the sacrifice of praise, spiritual sacrifice, pure and holy sacrifice, the holy and divine liturgy, the sacred mysteries, the most blessed sacrament, holy communion, uh, the bread of angels, bread from heaven, and holy mass. All of these are different titles that we give to one and the same mystery, namely the Eucharist. And what's really important for, for us, I think, to remember about that is that it's okay if people refer to the Eucharist as the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, or Holy Mass, or the Divine Liturgy, or Holy Liturgy, or the Breaking of the Bread even, right? Maybe people don't normally refer to it in all of those terms, but none of those terms 
are bad ways of describing the mystery of the Eucharist. And part of it is because this sacrament and all sacraments, but in particular the Eucharist, is such a tremendous mystery that we can't really find the right words to express what it even is. It's a, it's a challenge of our language, right? Sort of like if you have, um, you know, if you're married and you want to explain to someone how much you love your spouse or how much you love your children, or of course you can try. Um, or if you get a mom and a dad to explain separately in writing why or how they love their children, right? The explanations will probably use a lot of different words, but they're, but they're both right. So the church recognizes that in the history of, of the church, we have had a lot of of different ways in which our language is grasping to explain or name even these mysteries. So first it says Eucharist, that's the first one on the list, because it is an action of thanksgiving to God. The Greek words Eucharistain and Eulogian recall the Jewish blessings that proclaim, especially during a meal, God's works, creation, redemption, and sanctification. So that Greek word Eucharistain is a verb that means to give thanks, right? Or to, to, So to give thanks, and that's what we're doing in the Eucharist. We are giving thanks to God. What are we giving thanks for? For his creation, for his redemption, and for his sanctification of us, um, which we, that's, that is what in part, we are celebrating in the Eucharist. And again, I can't even say that's all we're celebrating because there's there's more uh, happening in the Eucharist. 1329 says we can call the Eucharist, this sacrament, we can call it the Lord's Supper because of its connection with the supper which the Lord took with his disciples on the eve of his passion and because it anticipates the wedding feast of the Lamb in the heavenly Jerusalem. So the Lord's Supper is another option because this is where it was celebrated by Jesus in the, the, in the Last Supper, uh, which, which the Lord was celebrating. He gave the Eucharist. Another term, also still in paragraph 1329, the breaking of the bread, because Jesus used this rite, which is part of a Jewish meal, when as master of the table he blessed and distributed the bread, and above all he did this at the Last Supper. It is by this action that his disciples will recognize him after his resurrection, and it is this expression that the first Christians will use to designate their Eucharistic assemblies. And by doing so, they signify that all who eat the one broken bread Christ, enter into communion with him and form but one body in him. So this, this expression, the breaking of the bread, is actually very important because of, uh, in a particular way, well, the, the Catechism says early Christians would use this term to designate their Eucharistic assemblies, but also in Scripture, the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, um, you have the road to Emmaus. And in fact, in the Catechism, when it's talking about this, it gives us a footnote for Luke 24, uh, the road to Emmaus. So this is the third day after Jesus' crucifixion, right? Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. Uh, well, two disciples are on the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes alongside them, and they're very downtrodden and upset about everything that's happened, that Jesus has died, and they thought he was going to be the one that was going to restore Israel. Um, and Jesus has to explain to them the scriptures. So he starts with the Old Testament, with Moses and the prophets, and explains to them everything concerning him, namely all of the prophecies of the Messiah. And then they arrive at Emmaus, the two disciples, and Jesus is going to continue on. They say, please stay with us. So they have a meal, and it's scripture says in Luke 24, in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened and they saw who it was. They realized it was Jesus. And then Jesus actually disappears 
visually, but he doesn't leave them, right? This, this is the symbolism of Luke's gospel. They don't see him anymore because they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. That When the bread was broken, they realized that this was Jesus, and there he still is with them in the breaking of the bread. So breaking of the bread is another way to refer to the Eucharist. Um, paragraph 1329 still continues, the Eucharistic assembly is another term to refer to the Eucharist because the Eucharist is celebrated amid the assembly of the faithful, the visible expression of the church. And this is one of the things that was so important for the early church, that they not only believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they not only taught that, but they gathered on the Lord's Day to celebrate the Eucharist. So the Eucharistic assembly uh, became an identification of who was a Christian. They were the ones that were there to celebrate the Eucharist. All right, paragraph 1330 gives us a couple more, the memorial of the Lord's passion and resurrection. And when we talk about memorial in Scripture, a memorial is something that happened in the past but is still in some way happening even in the present, um, and, and we'll, we'll we'll have to talk a little bit about more that a little bit more about that as we go forward in this series, um, particularly with the, the way Passover was a memorial. Um, the Eucharist is a similar memorial. It was in the past, but it's sort of happening again. So the Eucharist as a memorial of the Lord's passion and resurrection, and a biblical memorial. The holy sacrifice, thirteen thirty, another another term. Why would we call it the holy sacrifice? Well, the Catechism says because. The Eucharist makes present the one sacrifice of Christ the Savior and includes the Church's offering, which is holy. The terms holy sacrifice of the Mass, sacrifice of praise, spiritual sacrifice, pure and holy sacrifice are also used, since it completes and surpasses all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. So in the Old Covenant, there were all different forms of sacrifice offered to God as a form of worship, and we in the Eucharist are doing the same thing. We're offering the sacrifice of our Lord, the one sacrifice offered again at the altar. Um, so we can use this sacrificial language, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, the sacrifice of praise, spiritual sacrifice, all these terms. So one of the things the Catechism is trying to, to really get across is in the Eucharist, we struggle to describe exactly what it is. We have all of these terms which it says evoke certain aspects of the mystery of the Eucharist, and one very significant aspect of the Eucharist is its sacrificial aspect. Okay, continuing here in 1330, the Holy and Divine Liturgy, because the Church's whole liturgy finds its center and most intense expression in the celebration of this sacrament. In the same sense, we also call its celebration the sacred mysteries. You hear that at the beginning of Mass. Let us prepare ourselves to enter the sacred mysteries by calling to mind our sins, right? The sacred mysteries are everything that's happening in the liturgy, but especially the sacrifice of the Eucharist. We speak, continuing in 1330, we speak of the most blessed sacrament because it is the sacrament of sacraments. Uh, and the Eucharistic species reserved in the tabernacle are also designated by this name. So if you ever heard of uh, a church called Most Blessed Sacrament, right, that's, that's obviously it's referring to the Eucharist. But I like this idea of the Eucharist as the sacrament of sacraments. And that's really important for us to remember. And the Eucharist is a very different, it's just a very, very different part of our faith. All of the sacraments are important. All of them are, are, are means of grace, but the Eucharist stands above them as the sacrament of sacraments or the most blessed sacrament. Um, 1331, the, the Catechism says, I'll just read a couple paragraphs here. 
we can call it Holy Communion, because by this sacrament we unite ourselves to Christ, who makes us sharers in his body and blood to form a single body. We call it also the holy things, which is the first meaning of the phrase, the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed. And then we can also call it the bread of angels, bread from heaven, medicine of immortality, or viaticum, and holy mass, because of that last word, missio, sent. So the, the, the Catechism says we can refer to the Eucharist as the holy mass precisely because the liturgy ends with a sending forth, a missio, of the faithful, so that they may fulfill God's will in their daily lives. Now this is, you know, just some some brief comments on all of the different ways we can refer to the Eucharist. And again, I want to encourage you to take a look at, um, you know, other sacraments and the different names that are given to them. Um, For instance, confession. There's a lot of different names given for confession in the Catechism, I think is really interesting. Now, the next section of the text goes on to talk about the Eucharist in the economy of salvation, right? The the place of the Eucharist in, in the economy of salvation. And there's two really key things I want to make sure we spend some time on here. First is the, the use of bread and wine, and then when the Eucharist was instituted. So first on bread and wine, and we're in paragraph 1333. I'm going to read this a long paragraph, um, but I'll read, I'll read it in, in full and then give you some comments. At the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine that, by the words of Christ and the invocation of the Holy Spirit, become Christ's body and blood. Faithful to the Lord's command, the Church continues to do, in his memory and until his glorious return, what he did on the evening of his passion. He took bread. He took the cup filled with wine. The signs of bread and wine become, in a way, surpassing understanding the body and blood of Christ. They continue also to signify the goodness of creation. Thus, in the offertory, we give thanks to the Creator for bread and wine, fruit of the work of human hands, but above all is fruit of the earth and of the vine, gifts of the Creator. The Church sees in the gesture of the king-priest Melchizedek, who brought out bread and wine, a prefiguring of her own offering. Okay, now there's, there's a lot there. But what, what this paragraph is trying to capture is that the presence of bread and wine and their use in the Eucharistic celebration is because Christ used bread and wine at the Last Supper, right, on the evening of his Passion, and because bread and wine symbolize creation. God is the one who gives us bread and wine, right, by giving us the earth, by giving us the fruit of the vine, but it's also as we say in Mass, the work of human hands, or fruit of the earth and work of human hands. God has given us creation, but we then cultivate it, right? Vines don't turn into grapevines and and grow into wine completely by themselves. Similarly, wheat doesn't turn into bread completely by itself. It is a gift given to us. It is cultivated and then given back to God. So there's this, this symbolism of the bread and wine that we are giving his own creation, back to him, but then what does God do with it? The the Catechism says, in a way surpassing human understanding, God, through the invocation of the Holy Spirit, turns that bread and wine, which is a good, but it's just bread and wine, into his body and blood, and then gives it back to us in this sacrament that we struggle to describe with human words. So the bread and wine actually do a lot of work symbolically, 
and a lot of work goes into making bread and wine. Um, in the Old Covenant, let's continue here, 1334, in the Old Covenant, bread and wine were offered in sacrifice among the first fruits of the earth as a sign of grateful acknowledgement to the Creator, but they also received a new significance in the context of the Exodus. The unleavened bread that Israel eats every year at Passover commemorates the haste of the departure that liberated them from Egypt. The remembrance of the manna in the desert will always recall to Israel that it lives by the bread of the word of God. Their daily bread is the fruit of the promised land, the pledge of God's faithfulness and of his promises. The cup of blessing at the end of the Jewish Passover meal adds to the festive joy of wine an eschatological dimension, the messianic expectation of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. When Jesus, listen to this sentence, when Jesus instituted the Eucharist, he gave a new and definitive meaning to the blessing of the bread and the cup. Okay, that paragraph packs a lot of theology and, and um, biblical uh, allusions into a very tight space. So in salvation history, particularly in the Exodus, remember Israel is in slavery, Moses has to intercede on their behalf before Pharaoh, there's the plagues, finally Pharaoh says, go, you can, you can go. And they have to leave in a hurry, so their bread is, is, it did not rise, right? So they have, they're eating bread that did not rise, and then they continue to celebrate with unleavened bread. The Passover feast is specifically a feast of unleavened bread. And it commemorates not just that, like, we have bread, but, like, God did something for us, and this bread reminds us of that. Something much more significant is happening when we go to the Eucharist. It is bread, it is wine, but then it becomes the body and blood of Christ, and we're remembering in the very elements that were constitutive of the Exodus and of the Passover liturgy, through that, we're remembering what Christ did for us on the cross, and we're not just remembering it, but we're receiving it. So the use of bread and wine is very, very important. It goes to the Old Testament, but also to the New Testament, Moses, and also Jesus. And I want to offer you uh, one more thought here on, on the bread and wine uh, that comes from Fulton Sheen. So this is from his Life of Christ. Uh, and he says, why did our blessed, your blessed Lord use bread and wine as the elements of his memorial? Check out his answer. First of all, because no two substances in nature better symbolize unity than bread and wine. As bread is made from a multiplicity of grains of wheat and wine is made from a multiplicity of grapes, so the many who believe are one in Christ. Second, no two substances in nature have to suffer more to become what they are than bread and wine. Wheat has to pass through the rigors of winter, be ground beneath the calvary of a mill, and then be subjected to purging fire before it can become bread. I love the way he describes this. Wheat's got to go through all of this stuff to just become bread. Got to go through fire. Grapes, continuing, grapes in their turn must be subjected to the Gethsemane of a wine press and have their life crushed from them to become wine. And thus do they symbolize the passion and sufferings of Christ and the condition of salvation. For our Lord said, unless we die to ourselves, we cannot live in him. I think that is just a really, really awesome reflection on, on bread and wine. And the Catechism lays this out here, right, in, in more condensed language that 
The bread and wine are gifts of our Creator. Then we cultivate them, give them back to Him, and He gives them back to us, but they have become His body and blood. All right, a couple more paragraphs here on the bread and wine. So 1335 and 36, I'll read straight through them. The miracles of the multiplication of the loaves, when the Lord says the blessing, breaks and distributes the loaves through his disciples to feed the multitude, prefigure the superabundance of the unique bread of his Eucharist. The sign of water, turned into wine at Cana, already announces the hour of Jesus' glorification. It makes manifest the fulfillment of the wedding feast in the Father's kingdom, where the faithful will drink the new wine that has become the blood of Christ. 1336. The first announcement of the passion, I'm sorry, the first announcement of the Eucharist divided the disciples just as the announcement of the passion scandalized them. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The Eucharist and the cross are stumbling blocks. It is the same mystery, and it never ceases to be an occasion of division. Will you too go away? The Lord's question echoes through the ages as a loving invitation to discover that only he has the words of eternal life. And that to receive in the faith, sorry, to receive in faith the gift of his Eucharist is to receive the Lord himself. So much going on here. Um, One of the things that I really like here is, of course, again, bread and wine, the multiplication of loaves is one of Jesus' most significant miracles, right? The feeding of the 5,000. And then the water turning into wine at Cana. So we see our Lord not only in the Last Supper, but even throughout his ministry, working miracles involving bread and wine. And what is he doing at these, at these occasions? He's feeding people. He's sustaining them. He's giving them what they need to sustain them on their journey. This is a physical journey, right? But in the Eucharist, he sustains us on our spiritual journey through the spiritual food of the Eucharist of bread and wine. But something I want to draw your attention to is the, the, the connection between the Eucharist and the cross as both being stumbling blocks. This is, I've, I mean, I've, of course, I've studied this before, but when I was reading to prepare for this, it's something I had never really realized. When Jesus announces that he will suffer on the cross and die, how do his disciples react? Peter says, you know, no way, and he has to tell him, get behind me, Satan. At every opportunity that he announces his, his impending death on the cross, the disciples are confused and scandalized and sometimes, you know, scared. No, you can't die on the cross because you're the Messiah. You're going you're gonna to save everything. You can't die. The other major stumbling block is the Eucharist. And in John chapter 6, John's Gospel chapter 6, there's the Eucharistic discourse. Jesus tells the disciples they have to eat his body and blood, and nearly all of them leave. But the few that stay behind know that he alone has the words of eternal life. But he says to them, is this a hard saying? Because they say it's a hard saying. Is it a hard saying? Then what will you say when you see your Lord suffer? Jesus himself draws that connection between the Eucharist and the cross as stumbling blocks, as stumbling blocks. Um, and the Catechism highlights that too. Both of these scandalize the disciples and they divide people, and that continues even to this day. You know, the, the belief of Catholics in the Eucharist is is still a stumbling block for many people, but it was right from the beginning in Jesus's ministry. It was a stumbling block. 
But remember, the Catechism says, if we receive in faith the gift of the Eucharist, we receive the Lord himself. He is the one who has the words of eternal life, and he's called us to receive the Eucharist. All right, so the, the last section here is about the institution of the Eucharist. Um, and it really just, the, the Catechism highlights the fact that our evidence for the institution of the Eucharist is the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also the writings of St. Paul, and it also points us to John's Gospel because it calls uh, John chapter 6 sort of a, a, a theological preparation for the Last Supper, where he, he highlights all this. So with that in mind, we look at what the Catechism has to say about the institution of the Eucharist. This is cha- uh, sorry, paragraph 1337. The Lord, having loved those who were his own, loved them to the end. Knowing that the hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father, in the course of a meal he washed their feet and gave them the commandment of love. In order to leave them a pledge of this love, in order never to depart from his own and to make them sharers in his Passover, he instituted the Eucharist as a memorial of his death and resurrection and commanded his apostles to celebrate it until his return. Thereby he constituted them priests of the New Testament. 1338. The three synoptic Gospels and St. Paul have handed on to us the account of the institution of the Eucharist. St. John, for his part, reports the words of Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum that prepare for the institution of the Eucharist. Christ calls himself the bread of life, come down from heaven. 1339. Jesus chose the time of Passover to fulfill what he had announced at Capernaum, giving his disciples his body and blood. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us, that we may eat it. They went and prepared the Passover, and when the hour had came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, and when he had given him, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, "This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And likewise the cup after supper, saying, "This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood." So one of the things here that the Catechism is highlighting for us is the importance of the connection between Passover and the Last Supper, or Passover and the Eucharist. And again, in the book of Exodus, the Passover is such a significant event for the Israelites. It saves them from the angel of death, and then it sets up their liberation out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into the Promised Land. And in effect, what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper is giving us a new Passover to prepare us for the new Exodus. So we will pass out of not physical slavery, but slavery to sin. And we pass out of that slavery to sin through baptism, and then we are sustained on that journey toward the heavenly promised land, the new Jerusalem, heaven, through the sustenance of the Eucharist, which is a physical but also spiritual sustenance, right? It's food but it's food for our soul. So this is why paragraph 1340 says this. Let's listen to these words. By celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal, listen to this, 
Jesus gave the Jewish Passover its definitive meaning. Jesus' passing over to his Father by his death and resurrection, the new Passover, is anticipated in the Supper and celebrated in the Eucharist, which fulfills the Jewish Passover and anticipates the final Passover of the Church in the glory of the kingdom. So, to understand what's really happening in the Eucharist, in the Last Supper, we have to have at least a basic understanding, a basic idea of what the Old Testament Passover is about. And this is one of the keys to understanding our faith, and especially to understanding the Eucharist, um, and the theology even, is to have a grounding in salvation history. So, Brant Petrie's book, for instance, um, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, gives a really good primer uh, to know what the Passover was, how it functioned, and then you can see the Eucharist through, new, new, through a new lens. Um, and it's, it's exactly what the Catechism is saying here. The definitive interpretation or meaning of the Passover is the Last Supper. The new Passover is our Passover from death into life in Christ Jesus through the Eucharist, right, which we're privileged to receive at Mass. All right, the last couple sections here, real quickly, um, are on the, the idea of a memorial, um, the Eucharist as a memorial. And biblical memorials take something that happened in the past and they bring it back to the present, or maybe another way to think of it is they bring us back to that original event. So I'll give you an example from the book of Exodus, talking about, guess what, the Passover. This is Exodus chapter 12. Um, We're going to be in verse 24. So this is the law of what to do on the Passover, and Moses is telling people what their rules are. And then he says, in verse 24, chapter 12, "...you shall observe this rite as an ordinance for you and for your sons forever." Right, So the Passover out of Egypt is only going to happen once, but they're going to celebrate the rite of Passover perpetually. The next verse, 25. And when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. Verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he slew the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So this idea in the book of Exodus, also present in the Catechism, is that you know the Exodus happened in the past, but we celebrate it again. What's, why are we doing this? What is this night? This is when the Lord set us free. Like right now, he set us free. Even though it happened a long time ago. The Eucharist is a memorial in that same way. We go to Mass, we celebrate the Eucharist, and Christ is not being sacrificed again, but we are again able to receive and benefit from that one sacrifice that happened after you know after the Last Supper in Christ's Passion. We're brought back there, or it is brought back to us. It's not happening again, but we're celebrating it again. So this, this is the whole idea of a biblical memorial, um, and it's really what's discussed in paragraphs 1341 to 1344. So 
That is the end of this part. I hope you're enjoying this. Please leave comments if there's particular questions or, or things you want to maybe hear a little bit more about, and hopefully we can build them in um, as we continue this series. Uh, next part is going to be a really good one. We're talking about the historical structure of the Mass, and the way the Mass is structured today is very similar to what it was even as early as the 2nd century. So look forward to that one. Thanks. <laughs>